Kids, you're dismissed for Gospel Project, and uh, everybody else, as Todd prayed, will be in John today. So if you would turn to John chapter 3 is where we'll be as we continue making our way together through this great book called the Gospel of John. We are on page 518 if you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, page 518. Morgan Roberts, a dear friend, and member here is going to come read for us from John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thank you, brother. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
Those are among the opening sentences of the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America. Unless you're here as perhaps a student from another country, you already knew that. These are very commonly known words. So commonly known, in fact, they need no introduction. Today in our study of John, we come to a section of the Bible like that. So commonly known, it needs no introduction. In fact, we'll cover the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. These may be commonly heard words. In fact, probably those are here today who might not be Christians. You've probably heard that verse, maybe enough that you've memorized it. But while these may be commonly heard verses, they're embedded within a story that may be less commonly understood than we might think. So today what we're going to do is just work our way together slowly through these verses that Morgan read for us and attempt to understand them together. It is a story, in fact, so let's start just by setting the stage. Every good story consists, first of all, of good characters who make up the story. This one certainly has them. There's two. First, we have Jesus you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus is the guy who went into the temple and found a mockery happening in his father's house. And so in holy anger, he turned over the tables. He chased out the animals. He ran away those who were there where they ought not have been, seemingly for greedy reasons. This was the young spiritual leader with no formal training. And yet, he was eternal God in a body. The other character is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, that's a word not familiar to some of us. If you read the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of your Bible, you won't see that word. It's not there. Between the end of Malachi and the start of Matthew 1, it's just a page turn for us. But a period of over 400 years passed, and in that period of time, lots of things changed. There was new religious civil parties that rose up. One of those was a group called the Pharisees. They were the conservative people of the day. And embedded within that group was a group called the Sanhedrin. The closest thing we would have today would be the the Supreme Court. These were the ruling body of leaders among the Jews. And Nicodemus was one of them. But more interesting even than that, I think, is if you look at verse 10. Jesus called Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. In other words, he's saying Nicodemus was a man of great knowledge, a man of significant responsibility. A man who would have been thought of as having unique spiritual authority. 
He had money. He was from a solid family. He lived a religious, upright, impeccable life. He was a classic aristocrat, distinguished, well-known, respected. He was a man of status. He was a man of swag. So these are the characters, Jesus and Nicodemus. Every story has good characters. But even more importantly, every story has conflict. Whether you pick up a children's book or see a movie, you'd be embarrassed for your mom to be sitting next to you. The central ingredient in a story is conflict. What moves the story along is tension. It's rather easy to miss the tension in this story, but it's there. It's present. Let me see if I can draw it out for you. Nicodemus had reached the very pinnacle of both religious and civil life. He had the corner office. He had the fat stock options. According to the beliefs of the day, if anyone was to be on good terms with God, it was Nicodemus. When he walked into a room, this was the guy people wanted to take selfies with. He was the spiritual Yoda of the first century. The force was strong with this one. Nicodemus came to Jesus with what at first seems like a genuine curiosity. And there certainly was, no doubt, seeds of that there. But he also came with a fair amount of smugness. Let me show you that in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're the teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. In a sense, there's an interest, a curiosity from Nicodemus, but there definitely is also the wealthy sage talking down to Jesus by, by claiming that he had the power, the authority, the right to determine if Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be. You've been around this kind of person. It's the, the person who pays you a compliment but does so with a slight uptick of the nose as they look down on you. How do we know that? I mean, how do we know I'm not reading into the text? Well, look at verse 3. Here it's plain. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus sees right through Nicodemus' smugness, and he goes to the very heart of the matter. If you find yourself bored with the Bible, one of the things you can do is simply ask, what, what is the mood of this passage? What's the feelings around it? Is it happy? Is it sad? Is it tense? Is it light? And Jesus here is, without a doubt, confronting Nicodemus. These are heavy words. You see, in a sentence, Jesus 
tears down everything Nicodemus ever believed would make him right with God. He says, Nicodemus, not only did you not come to me in a true position of authority and entitlement, you're at present outside the kingdom of God. Let me see if I can apply that. Friends, your credentials before God are of no effect. God is not impressed with you. You don't wow God with your good deeds. It makes no difference how much you know or how nice you are. Whether you've regularly engaged in the big sins or people don't even catch you in the little ones, your spiritual resume is not only unimpressive to God, it is in and of itself repugnant to Him. Because commingled apart from God with even the good things we do are sinful, selfish motives. There is always apart from the Lord, a self-righteousness about us, a pride, an arrogance. Nicodemus had that, and you and I also have it. It's part of what it means to be a fallen human being. Your relative goodness or badness compared to other people, don't nudge your neighbor, makes no difference. God's Perfection is the only standard that matters. Now, let me put that in a rather provocative way. And I I do so not to be overly dramatic, but hopefully to cause you to feel something of what Nicodemus might have felt. The serial rapist and the stay-at-home mom who blows her top at her child and selfish anger are no different before a holy God. See, the Scriptures tell us to have failed in one part of what God expects is to have failed from it all. To be sinful in one area is to be guilty of the whole. So Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That means unless something incredibly dramatic happens to you, you do not have the life of God. There is no point in life. There is no hope of change. You cannot and will not enjoy the presence and power and pleasure of God apart from something happening to you. Nicodemus, you... You've overestimated your goodness, and you've vastly underestimated your liability before a holy God. Do you feel the tension? This is not a children's story. This is an adult confrontation. If your feathers are a bit ruffled, then you're starting to get a sense of something Nicodemus would have felt. 
So these are the characters, and this is the plot. But let's get to the very heart of the story. This phrase, the sentence, you must be born again. We'll spend the remaining time we have together on that. Let's consider what it means to be born again through four movements, if you will. First, what it is. What is it to be born again? This is the easiest of the four things we'll consider. Not that it's simple, not that we can bring it about ourselves, but its meaning is rather plain. Being born again is to be given spiritual life. Being born again is to be given spiritual life. You see, we're all born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Humanity as a whole and in every single human heart, we are people separated from God. That's what death is. It's a separation. Whether that's a separation physically of our souls from our bodies or when we're born physically, a separation of spiritual life from us in the immaterial part of us. It's always a separation. In the language of Ephesians chapter 2, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. And the only way to get right with God is for God to give life to us. This is the plain meaning of what Jesus says. You must be born again. Now, there are incredibly famous passages in the Old Testament that first two-thirds of your Bible, the Genesis to Malachi, in which God said, I'm going to bring you new spiritual life. This is the very heart of what the Messiah would come to do. And Nicodemus would have known these. He would have, in fact, memorized many of these. They would have been passages he knew exactly where they were. And yet he seems to have not understood them. One of them that Jesus would have had in his mind is from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 20, verse uh, 26 from chapter 36. He says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. This was ultimately a prophecy of what Jesus would bring when he came, that he would bring life that he would bring life to dead people. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. So what is it to be born again? It's for God to give you life. It seems today that the only people who use that language are politicians who were not so sure based on their actions, if it's actually happened to them. But this is a thoroughly Christian thing. It is a truth. It is an experience that every genuine Christian has had. God giving 
life. And number two, let's consider why this is necessary. Friend, your great spiritual need is not for reformation. It's not for renovation. It's not to be cleaned up or straightened up or set right. You don't need self-reform or self-help or self-improvement. You don't need to work on yourself. You don't need a remodeling of the soul, a spring cleaning, a rearranging. You don't need a fresh start. What you and I need is to be born again. The only hope we have before a holy God is for God to give us His very life. We need new natures. We need a dramatic, internal, spiritual change. We need God's life to make us alive. Now, the great news is that this isn't something we can do. It's something that God does. In fact, three times in this one passage, the text plainly says, you and I are unable to bring about this change. Verse 3, it says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, you must be born again. If this is slightly or intensely offensive, then you're starting to get a sense of what Christianity actually is. Christianity is the message that we are hopeless and helpless apart from a gracious God giving to us what we could never do for ourselves. Scholar D.A. Carson puts it this way, if Nicodemus with his knowledge, his gifts, his understanding, his position, his integrity cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and works, what hope is there for anyone else? who seek salvation along these lines. Friends, Nicodemus had more moral uprightness, more ethical straightness, more biblical knowledge than anyone else in the room does. And yet that wasn't enough. He was still spiritually dead. Are you? Are you? The issue we have is not that we need to become nicer or more moral or start tomorrow with some better habits. Our great need is to be made new. And only God can do that. But God can do that. This is the gospel. At the end of the day, I don't think you actually need convincing. Deep down inside, when no one's around, when there's no noise, most of us, in fact, all of us at certain times, have an awareness of just how dark 
we are inside. So what is it to be born again? It's for God to turn the light on. It's for God to light up the soul. It's for God to give life. We need a rebirth. Do you recognize that while you might get dirty on the outside and be able to take a shower and wash it off, there is no shower for the soul except for God renewing us, making us new. So that's what the rebirth is. And that's why it's absolutely necessary. But how does it happen? We know what it is, we know why it's necessary, but how exactly does it come about? Well, Jesus uses an analogy to try and help us understand. In verse 8, he says, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. To be born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is to be born again to be born from above. Jesus says that God's spirit is like the wind. Now, none of us have ever seen the wind, but we've seen what the wind does. We've seen the effects of the wind. We see its results. We don't have any question that the wind exists and that it's powerful. The wind will do what the wind wants to do. The wind is effectual. It will accomplish whatever it wants. Think back just a few weeks ago. You remember the storm that came through here? Seemingly one moment, everything was fine. The next moment, the air is full of dust. The next moment, huge trees blown over. Trees that took decades and decades and decades to grow in an instant, lying on the ground. It took me over an hour to drive home. I live five minutes from here because of all the trees and water. No question, the wind exists. Think even more, though, of what we've seen on our phones in even the last few days. Two tremendous hurricanes ravaging islands, the United States itself. Powerful, effective, able to do whatever it wants to do. Jesus says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is like that. He is without parallel in His power. But there is a big difference. The, the physical wind very often brings with it destruction. But the spiritual wind, the Holy Spirit, instead brings production, production of life, spiritual life. You see, when someone's born again, the Spirit brings life, gives life, answers the telephone. It's ringing again. It's a miracle. God bringing a dead sinner, 
rebirth. Another analogy that Jesus makes here is that we didn't choose to get conceived. You, in fact, had no part at all in that. You didn't choose when you were born or whom you were born to. These are things that happened simply to you, completely, 100% outside of your control. Now, what's the corollary? It's that being reborn spiritually works the same way. You don't bring it about. You don't cause it to happen. You're not in charge of it. God does it. Just like you were physically born, God causes one to be spiritually reborn. Christians, you were given eternal life, spiritual life. That was a work of God's Spirit, not your own. But don't misunderstand me. One of the tension points in this passage is that that doesn't mean that you don't do anything. How exactly this works, I can't quite flesh it all out. But there's no doubt both truths are here. You do nothing to bring spiritual life to yourself, and yet you have a responsibility. You see, Christianity doesn't say, I'm off the hook. It's, it's not fatalism. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you have a responsibility. You are accountable for something. That something is to believe, to turn from sin and to turn to God. That's very clear in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, if this hasn't been weird enough for you yet, we're going to crank it up a notch. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's incredibly weird to us, but it would not have been weird to Nicodemus. Pretty much any chapter of the Gospel of John, if you could pick it up like a towel and wring it out, the Old Testament would come pouring out. It is full of references, quotations, allusions to things in the Old Testament. This is one of them. Very unfamiliar to many of us, but it would have been like the back of Nicodemus's hand. John here is telling us that Jesus referred to a passage in the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book in your Bible. For time's sake, let me just tell you what happens. But this comes from Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites are here in Numbers 21, and they're doing what they did best, complaining. God had rescued them miraculously out of Egypt, the same Egypt that exists today. And he had delivered them out and was graciously, patiently, tenaciously, sovereignly providing for them at every turn. And yet, they found themselves complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining, just like some of us. And so, the Lord 
not impatiently, but rightly, got angry with them. And in an act of justice, God did something strange. He sent in a bunch of snakes. Now, you knew that snakes are unbiblical, didn't you? That's why we don't like them. But he sends in these snakes, and the snakes bite, bit some of the people, and they died. And so Moses did what Moses often did. Moses interceded. He came before God in prayer, and he said, God, yes, there are a complaining bunch, but you are a merciful God. Would you show him mercy yet again? And so God told him to do something incredibly weird. In fact, I I feel a bit silly telling it to you, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. God told him, get a bronze snake, make a bronze snake and stick it on a pole and tell everybody, if you get bit, then quit your complaining, turn from your sin and look at this bronze snake. And in that act of faith and obedience, God will heal you. You won't die. Again, we don't have to pretend this isn't odd. This is very odd. But Nicodemus would have known this story. And in an instant, he would have understood something of what Jesus meant. Jesus said, just like Moses propped up that bronze snake in the wilderness, and that was the way through which God brought mercy. Even more so, I, Jesus, the Son of God, am going to be lifted up so that all who turn from their sin and look to me high and lifted up will be given life. See, just like that bronze snake God used to give back physical life, the perfect, righteous Son of God. If you look to Him, high and lifted up, you will be given spiritual life. Isn't that beautiful? Your Bible is a cohesive, if I can say it, that would help. Your Bible is a cohesive whole a brilliant picture of the love of God. Jesus says, I've got to be put on a cross and lifted up. And then I will be lifted up even higher after I'm resurrected. I will ascend to the very throne room of God. And if you will turn from me Turn from sin and turn to me. I will give you life. My dear friend, you have and I have a responsibility. That responsibility is not to give life to ourselves. It's not to impress God with how well we perform. It is simply to believe. It's to trust in Jesus. That, after all, is what the most famous verse in the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he gave 
His one and only Son, that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. So that's what it is to be born again. That's why it's necessary. That's how it happens. The Spirit gives life. In our remaining few minutes, let's consider finally, what does this bring about? What does God putting his life inside of somebody produce? Well, friends, when God enters your life, eternity changes. Eternity changes. We are not here in the West. Those of you from the West know we are not a people that talk about death very much. It has become a taboo subject. In fact, I think one of the most offensive things we do is we cart off our old people and let someone else deal with them as they die because we don't want to see it. We pretend that it doesn't exist. And then when someone does die, we dress them up. We put makeup on them. We make them look like they're still alive because we can't bear the thought of death. But friend, you and I will die. Unless Jesus returns, your heart will stop beating, your blood will stop pumping, you will lose control of every part of yourself. You will die. In fact, you are closer to death than you were when I started speaking today. And that's saying nothing about the quality of this sermon. (laughs) We will die. And our lives this side of death are but a moment. But the great news is, you don't have to face the reality of death with any sense of fear. Paul said that to be absent from the body, in other words, to have died, is to be present with the Lord. Death for the Christian ushers us into the very presence of the God we love when we will see him face to face, be changed, be transformed completely. This is great news. This is what spiritual life, new birth, brings. But that's not all that it brings. We, we don't simply wait until we die to go to heaven for God to change us. There are, in fact, changes now that come from this new life God has put inside of us. You see, we're given new loves. We have new desires. We begin to love the people of God because we're given a new family. We begin to desire things that are constructive instead of destructive. Our habits begin to gradually change. Our thoughts get transformed. We start wanting to use our time, our money, our talents on things that help other people. Where there is 
alienation, there is gradually an increasing sense of the presence of God with us. Where there was chaos, there's peace. God gives us all these things in Christ. Now, I recognize in my own life, and perhaps in yours too, that this process of being given new life and then increasingly transformed into Christ-likeness until Christ returns is not a straight path. It is, in fact, quite bumpy, and I take many wrong turns. There are certainly days in which it feels as though I have made two steps forward with Jesus and nine back away from Jesus. We still struggle with sin. We still choose at times to love other things more than Him. We still do really stupid things. But the Spirit of God is within us. And just like we didn't start this spiritual growth process, we don't finish it. God does. God has firm control and grasp of your soul. And he will finish what he starts. So if you're a follower of Christ and you are discouraged today, would you be reminded of the truth that God's life has been given to you? And he is in you. And he loves you. And he is renewing you. And even your sin can be used by God to change you. To change us to look more and more like Jesus. That's what God's doing. Paul tells us this clearly in Galatians chapter 5. It'll be on the screens. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, meaning live every day by the power of God in you that brought you this new life. Wherever you go, whatever you do, do so with the awareness, with the intentional tapping in to the presence of God within you. Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and a big bucket, things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Those who do and continue to do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, generous, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus 
crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Brothers and sisters, those to whom God has given his very life, those who are spiritually alive, which one of those lists more accurately describes the way you've lived in the last week? Are you living like the corpse you once were? Or are you enjoying growing in the grace of God? And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, the tremendous news of the gospel is not that God, when you meet him, will have a scale. And this scale will have two lists. That good list we just read and the bad list. And if your scale is tipped more toward the good than the bad, then God will be impressed and let you in. Friends, that's not Christianity. That is Islam. That is Mormonism. That is humanism. That is secular do-goodism. But it's not Christianity. Christianity is God has done for you what you could not do for yourself. God gave his life for you. Won't you believe? Turn from sin. Turn to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the miracle of rebirth. I pray today, first of all, for brothers and sisters, fellow church members in the room. Perhaps they are here today discouraged that it's been a while since they've felt the life of God within them. They are weighed down by burdens and troubles and woes and cares and sins. There is an oppressiveness of soul. The Bible has become boring. The songs wrote, the prayers absent. The deeds of the flesh more evident. Father, would you encourage them today that you have caused new birth and that there is new grace for today. Your mercies don't ever expire. They don't have a shelf life. We don't use them all up. I pray they'd repent and return to you. And then in relationship with other brothers and sisters would invite in accountability and encouragement and friendship. 
God, I pray for the new Christians in the room. There are several I'm aware of. I pray that that joy they have as a new believer would become mature, that you'd grow them up in you, that you'd provide stability as the trials and winds of life come. God, I pray for those in the room who are undecided about Jesus. Father, would you grant them the gift, even now as I pray, of spiritual life? Would you open their eyes that they might see Jesus high and lifted up, full of grace and truth? I pray they believe. I pray as they do so before they leave this room that in, in the first great act of courage as a Christian that they tell somebody else so we could rejoice together. God, help us to be a church full of people reborn who live different, not because we're better, but because Christ has given us life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.